Hello, and welcome back to The Ready Room. I'm your host, Richard Frederick, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Leo Botari. Uh, Leo is an accomplished author, a keynote speaker, an adjunct professor, and a fellow podcaster as well. Leo is a thought leader on the topic of peer advantage, uh, the idea of engaging peers in a way that's selective, strategic, and structured. His latest book is called What Anyone Can Do, How Surrounding Yourself with the Right People Will Drive Change, Opportunity, and Personal Growth. Leo makes the case for harnessing the power of relationships in order to maximize our own potential accomplishments, and that these relationships are a two-way street. The title, What Anyone Can Do, is based on his belief that success and happiness do not depend on superhuman effort, but rather come to those who possess the discipline to do the little everyday things of which we're all capable, but most of us won't do. Our conversation was exactly the type of discussion I was hoping for when I first envisioned the ready room. Leo's perspective on the world and how we relate to each other challenged my own personal proclivity for individual effort in most things. His point isn't that extraordinary individuals have no claim to their success, but rather that the effects of our endeavors are multiplied when we engage those around us in helping us to achieve our goals. It's an idea that runs counter to my own sensibilities, but it's one that I need to hear more often because it's true of most things in life. Uh, We delved into a myriad of topics uh, in this one. Uh, We talked about the changing ways in which education is helping or hurting our society, uh, political discourse and our continuing inability to have meaningful discussions across not only the aisle but the dinner table, Uh, declining trust in institutions and media and what that means for how we relate to the economy and society. In short, it was a great conversation, uh, one in which I took away great new perspectives and valuable insights. Uh, Leo is a fascinating guy, a positive guy, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to have gained some of his wisdom. Uh, You can get his book, What Anyone Can Do, on Amazon as well as Audible. Uh, And I urge you to check out uh, his podcast, uh, also called What Anyone Can Do, with Leo and his co-host Randy Cantrell. And so, without further ado, I give you Leo Botari. Okay, Leo, sounds like we are uh, good to go. So thank you so much for being here. Welcome, uh, and good morning to you out there. I'm glad we both hey, had. thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure uh, for sure. Uh, so just a moment ago, we are talking. Uh, I, uh, my wife introduced me to your book uh, after having read it and uh, and taken your course, and she was like, man, he is just a fascinating guy. And I read the book, and I it's so much of it resonated with me for different reasons. Um, so, uh, yeah, just, uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll hold it up. I mean, you can... So, um, what anyone can do by Leo Botari, and I'm saying that right? Is it Botari or, or about it? Yeah, no, you got it. Yeah, you got it. Uh, great, great book. I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, it, it actually it's a short read, but it's real long if you're a guy like me who reads one paragraph and then starts thinking deeply about things for an hour before he goes on to the next. Uh, let me see if I can summarize. I, I, I kind of thought about uh, summarizing the book. You t- tell me how, if I'm close or not. Uh, you know, the bottom line, the premise of the book, I think, is that 
you know, no one individual uh, succeeds in their endeavors uh, on their own, uh, and that even highly successful people are. Um, have that success, at least in part, uh, because of the the people that surround them, the relationships they have, um, and that cultivating those relationships properly uh, enhances your chance for success and the, the success of those around you. Did I did I get close to that? You you got close, you know, and <laughs> and I think part of what's helpful for folks is to you know when you see the title, what anyone can do, you know, what does that mean and where does that come from? Um, it, as I had been writing the book, really along the lines of what you were just talking about, I was trying to think of a title for it. And oftentimes I know when I write articles or things and I have trouble um, coming up with a title, I'll kind of dive into the content a little bit and see if I can extract something that now, you know, can serve as a strong thematic. And um, turns out, that in the manuscript I had referenced uh, a book that I had read a number of years ago when I was involved in marathon training um, and it was written by Joe Henderson who's a former marathoner, former editor of Runner's World and Joe Henderson in this book called The Long Run Solution which he wrote in 1976 basically said that if you look a lot of at really successful runners or just successful people in general he said they're not always great at what they do because they're capable of doing superhuman things. They, they're not like any more capable in some respects than, than anyone else, but they do the things that anyone can do that most of us never will. And, you know, you really think about that, you know, how many people rise to the top of their field, not because they're the most gifted, but because they absolutely, you know, have the ability uh, to do those little everyday things and they stick to it and there's a grit and there's a, you know, an ability to, um, you know, to be consistent about you know, what they do. Left to our own devices, that isn't typically very easy. I'm not saying that those rare few individuals out there, but for most of us mere mortals, we're really helped by the fact that when we can enlist the help of others, whether it's through their encouragement or their technical advice or their experiences or whatever, if we can surround ourselves with those kind of people, make public what we want to do, we will tend to do those things that anyone can do far more often. So that's really, you know, kind of where the title comes from and, and why enlisting the help of others while most of us too often don't do it you know um i know you saw in the book that university of scranton did a study something as simple as a new year's resolution 92 percent people fail it and these are not <laughs> yeah leo it was funny i read that part and i thought yeah that i don't know how much money they they put onto that study but i probably could have told them that <laughs> because we know funny, that right? that most people don't but <laughs> Well, and, and they don't. And it's kind of amazing when you consider that these are things, A, people say that they want for themselves, and B, they're not particularly out there in terms of, right? I mean, they're not trying to make the Olympics in six months. They're trying to lose five pounds. They're trying to do whatever it is they're trying to do. Um, it's usually, you know, pretty achievable. Um, but then, in, again, left to our own devices, we, you know, we kind of um, – we get off to a good start. Next thing you know, it's like, nah, I don't know if I feel like doing that anymore anyway. So we don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me just let me kind of frame this uh, my my reading of this book for you, Leo, so that you can have that framework as we go forward here. Uh, I am a huge uh, I, I don't know what the word is. Uh, individualist. 
Um, like everything, like my wife tells me this all the time. She, she's like, you, you always, um, you always want to do everything yourself. You, you never want to ask for help. You, you, you know, every, you kind of go in your own direction. You, I definitely, I've always, always, and much to my detriment, by the way, um, kind of shunned the group, I guess, or, or purposely kind of said, no, I'm not going to do what, what you guys do. And so it was interesting to read this book from, from that perspective. Uh, that being said, I, it, I'm absolutely uh, the, the premise of the book, uh, and as you've just described it, is it seems right on to me, and and absolutely true because I think you know even though the you talk a lot about uh, peer relationships and and the relationships that you uh, foster and surrounding yourself with the right people, it, it, it I think you've made it very clear it, it you can have individual success, but you you still are. You're still a product of those relationships that you have, and none of us are living on an island uh, by ourselves trying to do something. That wouldn't work, uh, whether it's this podcast that, uh, uh, or whether it was in my career. And I don't know if you had it. Did you get? You have a chance to get on my website at all and, and look at that, Leo? I I know I'd sent it, but I know you're busy too. But yeah, you know, because it, I've been traveling yeah. so much, I, I wasn't able no, to No big do deal. I, I guess what I was going to say is before I kind of give you, but I don't know if you noticed, my, my background is 24 years as a Marine Corps officer. Um, well, that I knew. That I knew. From- yeah. And, and and so if there's ever an endeavor in which being, uh, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people and cultivating peer relationships and working exactly. together was super important, it, it's uh, being in the military. And... My wife often tells me that I am the least likely Marine ever to exist. Well, but in the Marine Corps, you learned that it was a necessity. You know, I mean, you guys have to trust one another. You have to depend on one another. I mean, all of you, uh, you know, have to work together. When you look at a lot of the great lessons of leadership that are taught in business today, most of them, in many respects, came from the military, you know. Um, So it always puzzles me when there's always this lack of understanding about whether people can go from a career military and somehow, boy, can they make the transition into the private sector? Yeah, they can make the transition in the private sector. And by the way, they'll do it better than most people who've been in the private sector for 20 years. I mean, there's so much yeah. there and so many excellent. Um, you know, Usually the diplomacy part is what we have to work on. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, yeah, you can't just bark at somebody and knife hand them and tell them, go do something in the civilian world. Um, hey, by the way, you, you still running? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have not, not long, you know, not, uh, I did run a half marathon with my daughter in, um, March nice. um, this past year, but yeah, that, those days of running really far getting, getting there. I, I uh, actually turned 60 in about a week and, uh, I love to run still a bike. I stay active. I do all that kind of stuff. I just don't have to run that far anymore. <laughs> yeah. You're you're out in California, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're in a good spot to stay active year round. We're getting into that part of the time of the year here where you just want to stay inside. It's uh, the, all of the running stuff that you were mentioning, Leo. I, I loved it. I ha- so it's been probably about a year since I went anywhere over five miles. Uh, but there was a time in my life where I ran all the time. And I have probably run uh, – I only ran one marathon, which was the Marine Corps Marathon, yeah. right after Officer, Can- Officer Candidate School. That's one I wish I did do. Oh, it's, it's great. Yeah, I mean, the the, the scenery – uh, you know, you go by all of the uh, the monuments and the like. It, it's a it's a great marathon to do. And um, but but I always kind of considered myself a soul runner. 
like I would run distances and just for myself and by myself. And again, it goes back to kind of what we were talking about. Like I would just go out for these long, long runs. I mean, incredibly long ones, but I didn't even, I didn't even clock mileage, uh, but I only really ran one race, I guess. Uh, and then I was like, okay, cool. I did that. And after that, I just uh, kind of ran for myself, but I, I still love running and I consider it free therapy. I, I don't think there's any question about that. I remember um, there was someone who uh, I was at a seminar or conference or something and were advocating uh, meditation, you know, and the last thing I imagined myself doing is sitting in a room by myself, like sitting in, in my view, doing nothing. Right. I mean, it would drive me crazy. However, I was reminded when this person was asking me about well, what do I do and all that. And he said, when you go on those long runs and you're just by yourself, that's your meditation. That's what it, and you know, he was absolutely right. I mean, that is that time where I just clear my head and I reflect and I just, you know, just doing that. And, and I think that time is essential. I don't think there's any question that, you know, part of, as you know, in the book, surrounding yourself with the right people first involves getting to know ourselves really well first because otherwise you're really going to have a difficult time knowing who those right people are because a lot of those right people have to do with what you want out of your life and what that looks like for you and every one of us have different talents and a different sense of purpose and um you know different goals and you know if 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 I were to look at it even in a smaller perspective, right? If I want to learn a language, I'm going to surround myself with different people than when I want to run that marathon, you know? Um, so I, I just think that, um, you know, part of the reflection part of it, part of that whole being alone and being alone with our thoughts and being honest with ourselves about what we want, not just what we don't want, um, is really important actually to helping us. It's a really a key uh, to, um, I think, giving us in, in our minds an understanding about how to go about reaching out to the right people and who they may be. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, that, that's something uh, that I hadn't considered. You, you know, you talk in the book a great deal about surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, but the right people may actually be uh, different, coincident with what you're doing at the time and trying to accomplish. And I hadn't even considered that, really. Um, obviously, you have your close friends, your family, uh, the peers that are always uh, around you. Uh, but then you might need to surround yourself with some folks um, that are particular to a goal that you're trying to achieve. And I hadn't even yeah, you, really considered you that. You might need to shed some people who are who are just negative, dark yeah, forces. I, I certainly want to get into that because you talk about that a lot. And I've seen that in the past. I actually had a thought about that. Uh, but I, I guess um, – so uh, let me let me ask you this. Uh, I, I always read the foreword of the book, and uh, the foreword was by a guy named Hoffman, Dan Hoffman. Yes. Um, and he had some thoughts. Uh, so a lot of what you talk about in the book is is not just surrounding yourself with the right people, but how we communicate uh, in general. And right in the foreword there, Dan Hoffman had some thoughts on technology and how that has uh, affected us both positively and negatively. And and I think you touch on that a lot. Um, and I, I've listened to a few of your podcasts now. There uh, there was there was one in, uh, that I'm thinking of in particular where you actually were just talking politics in general, just in general politics. It's more recent. And you, you touched on that, too. And it was sort of this idea of discourse and that is a big part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast. It's in our mission statement to improve civil discourse and, and talk about uh, about issues that that matter with people that don't think like you 
and you talk about that a lot in this book. Dan Hoffman in the foreword says, hey, we've got this technology. It brings us closer together in many ways, and yet it's also pulling us apart in a lot of ways. Just general thoughts on that. One of the examples I brought up, as I had mentioned, as you know, uh, is that I think some of the worst advice we get at growing up as kids is never to engage in conversations with people about politics and religion. And the reason I say that that's bad advice, and, and I understand why it's given, um, but the bottom line is that it sets us up for um, the expectation that anytime we are to have those kinds of conversations, it's it's just going to be a pitched battle. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be about defending your position. It's not going to be about understanding where someone else is coming from or what they grew up with or what their influences are and understanding how that guides and shapes their life, whether it's politics or religion, whatever it happens to be. Imagine if we could actually have conversations that didn't become some kind of argument about who's right you know, in that context, right? Think about it. Um, and, you know, the more that we, I think, can grow up and, and learn in this world that there are multiple right answers, number one, uh, and that it's just important to try to listen for understanding and to learn about, um, you know, we all grow up in this amazing world and we, and there's so many different people and places and cultures and influences and, you know, um, I think that the better we can understand one another, the better we're going to be able to work together. And right now, uh, I mean, you look at society today and, you know, it used to be that when I think it was always the case is when uh, we don't necessarily when we lose faith in our institutions, we turn to one another. Um, I feel like we're turning on one another. Um, in a way that's it's really disturbing. And I'm hopeful, obviously, that this is a brief glitch in our, our history and that, um, you know, in, in, in the coming years, we will begin to understand that we're all in this together and that the more we collaborate, um, the uh, more effective we're going to be, you know, in our lives. I actually run a workshop for CEOs where... I have them do a thumb wrestling exercise, interestingly enough, because I tell them that when I wrote the first book, The Power of Peers, one of the things I learned was that there's actually a world thumb wrestling championship that takes place in the UK. The point of it is I'll have them thumb wrestle each other for 30 seconds with the idea that I'm going to go around and find out whoever got the most pins among everyone will win like a fictional $100,000, let's say, right? So sure enough, they all go through it and I'll say, all right, how many pins did you get? How many points did you get? Someone will say, well, I got one, I got three, I got four. And then somebody who either has done it before or they just kind of figure it out, someone says, well, I got 40. And I said, wow, how'd you, how'd you get 40 in 30 seconds? He says, because this guy and I agreed that um, wow. he, he'd let me beat him, you know, or as, as many times as possible in the 30 seconds and we split the cash. Point of it becomes, and, and think about the result you can get. You can get 40 instead of four. So you get 10 times the result when you work together and all of a sudden you've got not a zero sum game, but something where everyone wins and everyone gains something. And, you know, it may sound like a silly exercise, but I don't care if you're looking at sales teams inside organizations or whatever. Whenever you get people focused on making the pie bigger as opposed to just fighting for their slice of it, it, it it's a game changer. And I think that um, 
we've got a, a ways to go in terms of at least where we are in society today, since you're talking about politics and communication and all, where we get back to that um, a little more. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be fierce debate. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to have um, very different views about uh, how to do what's best for this country or do what's best for the world or the planet or or whatever. Um, and I think those are fair conversations to have. But the moment we start attacking one another, attacking one another's intent um, and stop listening, then all of a sudden we're at this gridlock that, you know, we are today. Um, it's kind of interesting when Truman was campaigning for president, one of the things he was campaigning against, it was part of his, um, when he ran in the second, when he ran in 48, was um, the do-nothing Congress. Well, the do-nothing Congress probably passed more legislation than any modern-day Congress. You know, I mean, think about that. <laughs> it's really frightening in terms of the standard and how that's changed. So we got to start working together and making things happen. Yeah, there's a lot in that. So I, I really love that part that you talked about right in the beginning, because that's part of the book I actually had marked where you said, hey, we've been told not to discuss religion or politics. That's been a trope that's been handed to us uh, for decades, uh, if not centuries. I, and basically, uh, I, I'm, I have said the same thing you said, which is, hey, that's not doing us any good. We have to talk about that um, to be able to understand, because if we don't, then we just kind of stay inside and we don't ever kind of get to steel man the other side. Uh, and and then we're coming from a place, in, especially in a, a, a liberal democracy, where we're voting without all of the facts or at least a full understanding of the picture. Well, and that attitude expands from politics and religion to a host of other categories of things, right? So now we, we become wired, we become trained to not listen. We just, we're just preparing our response while the other person's talking. You know, we're all about trying to prove we're right. Um, and it's, it's just, uh, you know, it, it just becomes pointless, you know? Yeah, I do. So I've, I've thought a lot about this, and um, I, I think about it all the time. It's it's actually one of the things that me and my uh, colleague, Keith, who started this podcast with me, have, have talked about, which is you, when you start to talk about political issues, especially certain issues which become – which really elicit a lot of emotion, uh, and I don't want to get into specific issues, but you could probably guess you know the ones or, or think of a few, it, it becomes these really deeply held views, almost – religious in a way that so if you start to challenge them and show uh, you know and use some data that might back up a point or um, you know comparison and, and challenge views people and this is just human nature and this is why I want to ask you this question people have a tendency to not be open to that and it's 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 often not because they they're coming from a place of anger at you, uh, but but it's human nature. And I actually have said um, that you know maybe so we fractured into these these sort of like-minded uh, stovepipes as I call them online, and oh, and, and it's going and into life right and general, sure. yeah and and I. I've often, you know, I listen to a lot of uh, of great thinkers. I devour podcasts um, as well as conversation, and it, it there may be something to this that m maybe, and I, I'm not trying to, I, I'm not taking a stand on this either way. But there have been people say, "Hey, maybe this is just human nature. M maybe we are incapable of really 
uh, coming to uh, the kind of um, uh, what's the word accord on some of these issues and 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 a fracturing is just natural meaning hey all that we might have right now is uh, a you know, it's well and good to say, open your mind, open your hearts, open your ears, listen, talk, empathize, reach a compromise. But on deeply, deeply held beliefs, there may be an evolutionary factor at, at play that that makes us, or at least a, a, a great many of us, incapable of that. And it's a human evolutionary, uh, if you believe in, you know, um, evolutionary psychology, maybe this is just evolution showing its hand given a you know new soil in which to grow that being the internet and so now we're seeing this fracturing because it just is human nature and there's a very small minority of us going hey wait wait let's let's come together so i agree with most of what you talked about except with this idea that any of these dialogues involve reaching a compromise i don't think they do um i don't think they do at all i think that um the point isn't that I'm trying to change your mind about what you think. The point is I want to understand better where you come from and why you see the issue as you do. Yeah. You are going to see that from my perspective. Um, hopefully we can, we might absolutely disagree. Um, after the conversation, we may be more convinced than ever <laughs> about where we are and how we see a particular issue. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, but I, I'm just suggesting that, and, and there are fair disagreements out there on, on a lot of things like that. Uh, I just don't think, but when it comes to a point where we start vilifying, you know, someone else, when we start name calling, when we start, you know, at, attacking individuals and attacking their intent and um, really, and in, in in what we've seen when you talk about on the internet, basically spreading falsehoods, you know, about you know, whatever, all kinds of yeah, and all kinds of people and everything else. I mean, that's where this starts to go off the rails. I mean, people have, um, and I, I totally respect that they have, you know, very deeply held beliefs uh, about things. My, we just aren't wired necessarily, and I don't think this is biological or physiological. I think this is how we are nurtured. I think it's how we are brought up. That interesting. Um, we just simply are kind of not everyone by any stretch but a lot of people are just incapable of just having a conversation for the sake of trying to um under not feel like i'm being attacked you know i mean i think people just get really kind of oof, you know um and they get defensive and um you know i think that uh, that is a natural thing that that people do get defensive i think the good news is that we have a brain and that we can kind of think through well what am i getting defensive about really you know let's just kind of have a conversation into the and if you are actually in a dialogue where someone is actually doing it for the purpose of not trying to set you up, not trying to <laughs> call you out, not to, but really for the purpose of like, hey, I just want to understand where you're coming from. Because yeah. I think, you know, I I think a classic example um, are there are some people who absolutely cannot understand um, why someone could have voted for Donald Trump for president with everything we knew and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, uh, you know, so I'll, I'll tell you personally, I didn't vote for him, but I, I totally get why someone would, 
you know, because I've listened to enough of those folks and I've seen, you know, whether it's research or metalman trust barometers that talk about, you know, lack of trust in institutions and the fact that the post 2008 financial crisis, when we're dealing with a situation where people lost homes, lost pensions and all that and thinking, okay, there's two systems at work here. There's an establishment that's working for some people, a very few, and not really working for me too well. So I'm up for trying something different, no matter, you know, <laughs> what that looked like. And, and they did. And I don't think you can blame them. Yeah. You know, quite frankly. Um, uh, you know I, I don't have to agree with it, um, but I'd be, you know, not to try to understand. Yeah, you're it. trying to understand at least. And at least figure out, okay, well, how do we then, you know, not put ourselves as a country in a position where we believe we are backed into a corner to that degree that we're going to completely, um, you know, again, alter course. I mean, this is someone who, and again, I'm not attacking Donald Trump, but bottom line is it's, it's a fact that in 2012 when he ran, it was a publicity stunt. In 2016, there was very, you know, it was people who were even skeptical whether he was going to remain in the race. Um, and yet he emerged out of, you know, 17 candidates to get the nomination and, and win the presidency, largely because of the uh, dynamic that uh, we were talking about. Um, and, um, you know, so, I mean, I think it's important to understand that and, um, and not to, you know, again, <laughs> be getting personal about what people did, but more or less understand the fact that, you know what, they're, again, we're all in this together. All they're doing is trying to raise their family and do what, they, you know, they're just trying to make good choices and trying to do, and I think people got a little bit fed up and they threw their hands up and they were like, okay. You know, in fact, uh, Trump gave a speech during the campaign uh, in 2016 where, he, and I remember watching it, and it was in probably a couple of months before the election. And he was at one of his rallies and he said, well, what do you got to lose? And when I heard him say that, I said, oh, boy, I think that's really going to connect with a lot of folks who, you know, have seen a lot, you know, in the past uh, in the previous five to 10 years. And we're like, you know what? I think he's right. And <laughs> and here we are. So. I, re I remember that speech. Yeah. And, and you're right. Sometimes, uh, especially when you feel powerless. Um, well, that is all. So that's a, a great and interesting take. And, and you're, you're absolutely right, I think, uh, to uh, to say, hey, look, we have to understand because there's no way, right, that about 50 percent of the population in this country are evil people. Right. Uh, no, they're, they're just. Really yeah, they're, they're literally I, I know very, very good friends that uh, that voted Trump. And I have very good friends that voted the other way. Uh, I, I happen to be one of those uh, less than five percent that voted for another altogether. Uh, as a matter of fact, my wife always tells me she's like, it's no surprise, Bart, that your favorite color has always been purple. <laughs> and it has. And when she said that one time, I was like, holy moly. <laughs> That's really uh, <laughs> I had not considered that. Um, yeah. But, you know, and, and so you're right. And, and, and I think that the people I think that the center is losing right now it's it's not popular to be centrist uh, well you I, can't yeah you know, the, the, there's no there's no so there's two things you know it's about the media and and really everyone in general right we are interested in the fight and we are interested in the extremes yeah 
Yeah. When that gets views and uh, we can get into that. I mean, yeah. Huh. I, you know, so when that starts to happen, have you? Have you I'm sorry, I'm just everyone to that. I'm sorry, Leo, and I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah. But by the way, have you ever? Um, have you listened to Rene Durestra, uh talk about the Internet Research Agency and the, the Russian uh, uh, troll farm? Oh, yeah, I have. Not. Uh, find, if I have you not. can, if you if you find yeah, if you a, a link uh, or something, send it to me. Yeah, uh, she has been on a couple. Of, uh, Sam Harris comes to mind. Uh, she. She had a talk with him. I think she was on with Rogan. Uh, you should listen to her. She's the expert on that Internet Research Agency. It really opened my eyes as to exactly what they were doing and, and really the extent to what they did. But uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I, I interrupted. Keep going. You, you had a thought on on uh, what we're talking about in terms of center not being hold. Yeah, no, I, I think I've pretty much completed that. And, 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 you know, let's face it, we've got, and you alluded to it before, not just in terms of social media, but we've got, um, you know, people basically pick their own news to watch that aligns with their worldview. Um, and um, and I, I do like to watch MSNBC and Fox News because I think it's it's fascinating yeah. to me. And it, again, it gives me a window into... It's, it's, um, it's how, funny, Leo. How, I've, t- I, I've actually said to a close uh, family member, I'm like, I, I don't watch either of those as a matter of fact i i think watching any of the 24-hour news channels is a real problem and we should uh, abstain from that probably abstain from facebook as well and twitter to the max extent you can and find people like yourself uh that are thinking a little bit more deeply about things so and- i think that's a fair that's a fair way to think about it i think you either watch <laughs> neither or watch both yeah well i, ch- I choose <laughs> the, the moment, uh the moment we get i choose the former the moment we get channeled into one and again you know, assume that, you know, we are right at the expense of any other ideas, thoughts, you know, anything yeah. else out there or the possibilities out there. That's when it starts to get a little dicey. Yes. You know, you, you mentioned in, in the book, uh, Leo, uh, growing up and, and, the, and the amount of channels we had to watch. Right. Uh, yeah. You had you had three, four, and then maybe you could go to the UHF channel and flip around until you found something local, uh, you which meant ABC, that you CBS, yeah. NBC. Public television. PBS, yeah. You had a couple of UHF channels. Shout out to the electric company. (laughs) So so I I basically, first in black and white, of course, and then eventually in color, but but basically six television channels was it. Yeah. And we had more on television back then. Now we have 600 channels. Yeah. We've got, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I I maybe watch one or two of them, depending on what live sporting event, because I almost don't even watch – television anymore it's like everything i consume seems to be on the internet uh so uh, but but and you've mentioned it we're, we're we're consuming things because we can that appeal to us and that is uh both problematic and also good like so i, I i've said and I'll, i'm going to sound like a broken record to my listeners of course but you know i've said at this point you know if you have a passion that is very esoteric um you can you can make your life about that. There's no shortage of, of websites, YouTube channels, uh, people you can follow that, that will tell you about, you know, um, uh, whatever it happens to be, hiking the Appalachian Trail, right? Um, and You can make yourself feel good all day long. That, that's right. And so you can, you, you can make your passion everything that you consume uh, to the, you know, I wouldn't say detriment, but to the exclusion of other things that you might be thinking about. But... I it's been my experience at least my sense is that most people don't want to think deeply about all of these issues they just want to live their life they want to do what you know they spend time with their family they have a hobby that that, that's particular to them and they want to do that um, or or read novels or whatever 
but they don't want to think deeply about issues. And so when you try to kind of do that, they get uncomfortable, and then all of a sudden you're persona non grata. And so when you mentioned, I I guess I disagree a little bit, but uh, that, you know, it's all nurture, because I do believe that there is, you you mentioned the mind. I mean, we, we know a little about just how different human minds are, right? So I think that that some of the the, the the debate and the unwillingness or willingness to do so thereof is is partly nature and partly nurture and those things come together yeah you know and um and you know uh, i i wouldn't even presume to suggest you know as we've talked about today what's right or wrong you know but but again it's understanding how you or i or people tend to to view these things and how we see them i know this we probably can't do much about the nature part but we can do something about the nurture part which is why <laughs> that be, be, for me became um you know such a such a focus in the book to figure out well what can we do you know how how can we do it, it you know as you know um the first book i wrote was um and with um co-author leon shapiro called the power of peers which looked at formal peer groups and how effective uh, they can be for ceos and business leaders the year after that book i had a podcast um that was called the year of the peer where i had uh, a different guest every week and some really amazing people yeah i'm jealous by the way you're gonna have to you're gonna have to tell me how you do that well you know uh, you know how you do that you get two or three and then you once you get those two or three on the show you pitch that you've had those two or three on the show to people that are in that caliber and they all want to be on the show that they're contemporary. All right. Are. So just be, it's just power appears before right? warned. I'm mean, about to start throwing your name around then. <laughs> that, that, that's how that, that, I mean, that's how that works. Yeah. You know? um, but it was, um, but it was during that podcast that two things became really evident. One was that um, these people, not one of them, achieved any level of success totally by themselves. They had countless people to thank for what they did. Um, And secondly, those people weren't just their peers. They were parents, teachers, mentors, their kids. You know, it's this whole circle of people we surround ourselves with, which is why what anyone can do goes from formal, formal peer groups to business leaders to take anybody who I think has the ability to surround themselves with a good circle of people um, uh, who can, uh, I think, not only do better for themselves by doing so, but can do a great deal for others. And I think, you know, there's a big part of this that's really about paying it forward. You know, so many of my podcast guests basically said, look, there, there, there are people I will never be able to pay back for what they did for me. But what I can do is when someone who is looking for my help, if I can help them advance their career, if I can help give them uh, some understanding or share experiences with them and all, then they're going to invest the time to do that because they know how important it is and they realize that people were there for them when they needed them and it's kind of their role now um, to do the same. Yeah, great, great point, uh, and and I love that. I've heard it called. Uh, I had another guest who had a who wrote a book, and he talked about the abundance mentality, which really is exactly that. Hey, there's enough for all of us to be successful here. Let's prop each other up, and there's a lot of that in this book, Leo, which I love. Um, 
And so since we're bringing it back around, I'm, I'm glad we brought it back around to the book because there's a there's a, a few things that um, there's just so much. But how about this? You know, you talk about we're taught to see life as sort of this individual endeavor rather than as a team sport. And you give several examples of that, one of which uh, goes into how we're educated. And this is a topic that's fascinating to me. One of these days, I really want to get a uh, a future ex- uh, education expert on and talk about what things are going to look like. Because we are in our, the, currently the way we're schooled, we are uh, evaluated on an individual basis, an individual effort. I don't see that changing anytime soon, although I would be all for that. Um, but it seems like there's uh, there's not a good way to say, okay, hey, uh, the whole, you know, we're going to have a group that just comes forward and, and is and is evaluated together. Uh, there might be a way for that. But here's the bottom line. Like, like So here's a thought that I jotted down, Leo. Right now, uh, I, I feel like I've been very successful. Uh, in life. Um, what I've set out to achieve have been incredibly difficult challenges, and I've, I've achieved those challenges. Um, and, and and yet, if I were to apply to Yale right now, I would not get in. Uh, they would be like, hey, your, your grades in school were not good enough. You are not good enough to come here. And yet, I will tell you, I would put myself up against uh, probably better than 70% of the student body there, or at least that's how I feel. Um, maybe I'm wrong in that, but I, I certainly feel confident that I would excel there given the opportunity. But I won't get in, and it's because of uh, you know stuff that happened when I was younger where I kind of had a different focus on things. And, and oh, by the way, a real tendency to uh, buck authority to include my teachers, uh, which doesn't help you when subjective grading comes around, right? And so it, it occurred to me, and I was just talking to a friend uh, recently who is just a brilliant, brilliant uh, woman. And I said, you know, I could get a Yale education right now. Right now, without even going to Yale, there are any number of platforms where I could take, where I could go online and consume courses from Yale to the point that I have taken every course that would give me a degree. And yet, I won't have that piece of paper. And so I'm not as marketable to an employer. Uh, to me, there seems to be a real disconnect between how we are getting, how we are educating ourselves uh, versus what education is accomplishing nowadays. Well, there's a lot in there to unpack. Um, so first of all, uh, students are definitely evaluated um, as individuals. However, um, collaborative learning is far um a, a far bigger piece of the actual education of students today than it ever was. I, I tell people a lot of times in my talks that collaborative learning when I went to school was called cheating. Um, and, you know, it was the idea that I remember reading it was very much about, you know, the teacher or in later years, a professor standing up in front of the room, right, shielding your paper, um, <laughs> but standing up you know, in the front of the room, you taking notes, you do your quiz, you do your test or you write your paper or whatever. And that was how that was done. Um, you know, today, however, 
um, especially. And of course, it was really introduced to me at graduate school, but it's happening at all levels in school now. But when you have professors realize that there's a lot of intellectual capital in the room where people can learn from one another, and we do that naturally very much. Um, you know, Etienne Wenger, when he did his research with Gene Lave in Great. Africa. Great. I'm glad you mentioned that name. I have it written down. He, um, uh, you know, the, the point of that research was they went there trying to study the relationships between the student and the master in terms of learning specific crafts. <clears throat> what they discovered, of course, was that people got better, faster, and more proficient because the students were helping and working with one another in addition to the relationship they had uh, with whoever the, the master of the craft was. And so we know, and there's all kinds of research out there, when we learn, when we read something on our own, um, we have, we'll remember, I think the number is about 28% of it within about 24 to 48 hours, that's it. That's the best we can hope for. And you know that the number just keeps going down by the day, right? Um, if we review the material again, it goes up to 46%. If we actually engage with others, ask questions, share experiences, do that, that number moves to 69%. So when we think about being able to double or triple uh, our learning capacity by, by engaging others and embedding that learning and increasing our understanding of it, it it's a huge it's a huge thing. And when you look at um, uh, you know really successful uh, education programs today in the U.S., whether they're in secondary school or whether they're in um, you know undergraduate or graduate schools, that's the kind of stuff you have going on, and that's um, far more effective. Um, I also would only suggest that. Um, regarding your Yale example, that you've got a lot of assumptions. In oh, there. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My guess, my guess is um, if you wanted to go to Yale badly enough and get admitted uh, in some way, shape or form, whether it was to a certificate program or later to a, a graduate program or something like that, I'm pretty sure you could make that happen. There's a lot of things about you know, one of the things, well, and you know this from my um, my work as an adjunct professor, professor at Rutgers, right? I'll have people, for example, who will say, well, I've got this gap in my resume. And you could see them like practically standing in front of you, like kicking the dirt, like this is something they're ashamed yeah, of. Yeah, like they're holding their hat in their hand. Yeah. Four months or six months, right? And, you know, I said, well, what would happen if you just said to somebody when they said, hey, how do you explain this? And you say, best six months of my life. You know, I was I was finished with this particular job or whatever. I took some time. I did this, 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 and this. Really found where I wanted to be. Went to this job, did whatever. Boom. Now all of a sudden, you, you've just completely cast a completely different. Um, in true story, by the way, I'm not asking you a lie. I'm, I mean, the bottom line is that you're looking at it like a big gap, and you to say, "Yep, there was a big gap there." And boy best thing that ever happened, you know, um, or that you did it intentionally or that whatever, the, you know, the reality of it is. But I, I think when we start taking ownership of, of our story and not apologizing for it, but saying, this is life, this is who we are, this is what, and, and when these things happen to show that we learn and we grow stronger and we gain something that is of value to others, I think this is where when we start getting really good at understanding who we are and being able to explain that and then talk about who that person uh, is and how it can, how they can be valuable and add value uh, to your organization, those dots get connected pretty quickly. Um, you know, employers aren't always 
hiring someone who can do the job. In many respects, if you if you want to use that as the measure, there's a lot of people that have the skills to you know check off the boxes on the job description. The question is really going to be who do I want to work with? Yes. Who's going to be a good fit in this yep. organization? Who's really going to add value and and share the values we have about how our organization uh, works? And you know, I mean, so there's a, there's a lot there. And I think a lot of it is how we see ourselves. I, I don't know if I told this story in the book or not, quite frankly, I can't remember. Um, but there, I had a client one time that was a hundred year old uh, engineering firm and they were looking at some of the challenges in the future from a technology standpoint and all of them were feeling like, man, we're, we're just, we feel like we're just kind of the stodgy old white guy firm that is never going to be able to do anything here, you know, with the world changing as quickly as it is. So of course I looked at their history and this is a company that over a hundred years, what they survived depressions and world wars. And I mean, it was unbelievable. And the things they did, it wasn't just about names and dates. It was about how this organization pivoted every single time, not only to survive, but actually to thrive and grow and, and be around a hundred years later, which is no small thing. So I remember rewriting their history for them and telling them not only are you capable of dealing with whatever's next. This is part of who you are. This is in your DNA, for God's sake. I mean, you you guys own this. And all of a sudden now, when you start seeing yourself a little differently like that, it's like, huh, all right, game on. You know, let's, let's do what we got to do now to do exactly what we've done every time we've been presented with these kind of challenges in the past. And I, I think as individuals, when we start thinking about that in the same way um, and, and trying to reframe. And as you know, we talk a lot about reframing uh, in the book. Um, it can be really, really helpful, you know, for us and it can change everything. Yeah, a- absolutely. Man, there's so much relentless positivity in all of what you just said, which is what I love. And and right at the beginning, you know, right at the beginning, I was sitting there nodding my hand because you're like, hey, you know, hey, what about this gap? And, and, you know, the guy's got his hat in his hand, you know, asking for some, you know, some uh, some grace from you. And, and instead, he, he could be saying, hey, listen, yeah, that was that was a great time for me because I did this and this and this. And I collected some thoughts and I and I had this experience. Um, and I, I I actually have a friend who was such a self-doubter. Sometimes I'm always telling him, hey, you have got to sell yourself more, man. You have done a lot. You are you've got this this incredibly negative image of yourself you know in terms of your experiences because some things didn't go the way you want and you even talked about it in the book leo that failure is is a great great thing it can be a great thing an, an opportunity and this is actually one of the lessons that i've been again a broken record for my audience but i've been telling my daughter um you know as soon as she could understand i was like hey look you either win or you learn you win or you learn. You don't lose, right? I mean, you may not win whatever you're you're doing, but you've yeah. you've learned a lesson, and that is important. And I always relate. There, I'm a I'm a big big college wrestling fan, um, Olympic style wrestling guy. I, I wrestled uh, in my youth, and I still follow it. And I went to Penn State. We have a, a great team. Well, we have a guy who was a multi time national champion and is now a world champion wrestler. And he has said, uh, I listened to an interview where, with him where he said, you know what? When I get to when I've gotten to this level now that it's hard for me to find someone to beat me and he goes and man do I miss that what an incredible thought right what an incredible thought he's like I want someone to beat me because I never learn more 
than when I take a loss. And if I'm just winning, I'm not learning anymore. So he's like, I am constantly looking for the best in the world to come at me and, and beat me so I can go home with this great idea like, wow, okay, I just got bested. There is a lot to unpack and I'm going to use that and I'm going to move forward. What an incredible thought. Well, you know, it really is. And, um, you know, it, it's it's really very much all about um, trying to understand what's right about us. You know, it's, we, we've so focused oftentimes on, on looking at where our deficiencies are. It's how performance reviews are done. You know, it's like, hey, here you did this and this, but boy, you got to really work on that, you know, and... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this this is why, to a certain level, I love uh, Strengths Finder so much. Uh, Strengths Finder doesn't tell you to ignore your weaknesses, but it does put, I think, a reviewer in the mindset of being, say, "Hey, you're a really great writer. How about let's work on making you a world class writer? Let's not having you spend time on other things that you're, you know, aren't really." A game-changing part of your position anyway but here's where you really add value here's what you love to do let's go do more of that let's help see if we can provide you uh you know the ability to really take that to a whole new place and you know that's a that's a fun thing and that's pretty inspiring i would imagine for you know most employees to get uh, an opportunity to do that yeah absolutely and and we're not conditioned uh, like you just said, to to take any of those, like a peer evaluate or a, a performance evaluation, uh, and you know, and look at that as something like an opportunity. I mean, again, going back to human nature, most of us are probably pretty discouraged when we're presented with the bad parts of what we do, uh, rather than being that you know being able to go, oh, okay, yeah, there's a there's a great opportunity there, or maybe they're doing the wrong thing, and so any. And you talk about this too, and I and I actually interviewed a um, uh, another author named uh, Joe Batista who wrote a book on on creating your passionate life. He goes, a lot of people are in the wrong thing anyway, and so uh, any of the negatives that go along with something that you're not really enthralled with anyway can be magnified so so that it it, it brings you down either even further. But if you're working towards a goal, and I, and I, that's a lot about what you talk about in this book, is you're working towards a goal that. Uh, that you have a clear vision of and you're getting feedback that is worthwhile, then that all becomes all of a sudden something that is great to hear rather than something that is uh, is a discouragement or something that has you go, okay, well, I, I give up or, or, or what whatnot. You know, and, and uh, let me bring up another point that I'd love to get you because you actually started to talk about this in terms of um, about using your talents and you, you, you put that in there. And here's another thing that I tell my daughter all the time, and I will tell my son as well when he's able to understand, is uh, th- there's a quote, um, and, it, and it goes something, it, you've probably heard it, but it goes something like this. Every, everyone's a genius, but if you measure a fish by its ability to climb trees in a class full of monkeys, he will always feel himself a failure. Um, and that's true. And it goes back again to what we were talking about when we started this this uh, vein of conversation, which is education and finding those talents that you have and using them uh, in a way that, you know, it may not be, uh, what's the word? It may not be really incredibly evident, 
in a classroom environment. We've seen that before. And it always it, that one always stuck with me because I kind of felt like, you know, at least in my school years, that I was probably a, a little smarter than my grades were indicating because I just kind of had this sort of, ah, I, I, don't, I don't believe what you're telling me or maybe I can do this my way or, uh, you know, this contrarian sort of attitude. Um, but there's, there's a lot that I, that I think I have to offer that doesn't work well in that what you talked about that sort of hey here's the you, you mentioned like the no child left behind and how we went to testing that was more about you know language and math and 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 um uh you know multiple choice where they're not teaching critical thought they're just giving you a, a group of answers and telling you to pick the one yeah when we you look at pisa scores which are the you know measure um that um, you know basically looks at those things across countries around the world, and you know, the U.S. just keeps dropping uh, both in reading, math, um, you know, and science, unfortunately. Um, and we've got to figure out a way around that. What's interesting is we know we, we know the answers to the test. There, we just aren't necessarily prepared or want to do something that was invented somewhere else and try to employ it you know here yeah and granted in all fairness when you're dealing with um you know 50 states there's a big difference in terms yeah, yeah of, the u.s is different than say singapore right you mentioned that that's a great example yeah it, it, it would be more like comparing singapore to connecticut or yeah yeah exactly know, yeah great and i say that because what might work for kids in terms of what they learn and how they learn is going to be different from kids in Massachusetts versus Texas versus Alaska versus, you know. So I think there are different, uh, you know, when we look at culture, when we look at all kinds of things there. Um, but so it, it kind of, you know, makes the case in many respects for these states having a lot more, um, you know, control, if you will, um, over uh, you know their whole education system in many respects um, but you know you're kind of dealing with biases from a long time ago with regard to the need for Department of Education and all this other stuff and and I'm pretty sure there's a balance that's there. a can of worms right there I, we can open it balance right now so <laughs> you know but um, but when you look at countries um, Finland to me is extraordinary yeah, yeah. when I think about um, yeah they're you know, they're very often their system is very often looked at as a, uh, a real a and, real model. And by the way, our neighbor Canada is right there as well. Uh, Canada is an outstanding um, education system. Yeah. So, but yet you look at higher ed, and we are still uh, the best in the world. So it's a kind of yeah. I, you know, I, I, there I've heard people say, "Hey, listen, the uh, the sort of uh, the way we go about it may leave some back, but ends up ha- allowing the, the the brightest to rise." There might be a little something to that. There is a line to be drawn, and you actually, you know, you said it in the beginning. It's like. Hey, it's all about, you know, uh, talking with one another, having these uh, ideas and then um, uh, and then having, you know, and saying, hey, listen, uh, uh, you know, where, where do we draw that line on, on what we're going to do? I really thought a lot about this when I came to that part in the book where we were talking where you were talking about education and and how we we teach. So there's, there's probably a certain amount of. I, I don't know. Tell me what you think. There's probably a certain amount of, you know, up to a certain point, maybe there's just, you know, the basics that we instill in, in children who are, who, who, 
aren't really yet capable of, of um, you know, engaging in thoughtful discussion, right? I mean, up, up until a certain point, they just are kind of like, what? You know, and, and you're not going to be able to gauge in, in really deep discussion. And, and so they're getting some fundamentals down. Um, and so, yeah, I'm having to, you know, my, my daughter comes home. She's seven years old. Uh, I'm having to relearn math because, you know, there's all these new concepts. And uh, I'm like, what do you mean? It's 11 minus six. <laughs> and so, but that's that's good because I think some smart people have, have decided or, or determined that there there are different ways that people learn and they're trying to do that. Yeah. I love it. So there's probably some some you know up until a point some hey here's the right answer here's the wrong answer right uh, and then at a certain point and I don't know where that would be then we start to kind of start talking about a critical thinking and thinking outside the box and and enabling kids to um, to to use that incredible natural uh, way that they have of looking at the world differently. You even, man, there was a great example in that book, a guy talking about, he said, uh, look, I have an 11-year-old son, and he still hasn't had it beat out of him yet, that fearlessness beat out of him. He goes, but it's going to happen. He said, over the next few years, he's going to raise his hand to answer a question, and a teacher or two is going to say, hey, no, that's that's wrong, You're, you, you know, that's even or even worse like hey you shouldn't even think that way and and he's going to stop raising hand and and then at the end he goes and then he's going to become like the rest of us what a sobering sobering thought because the children have this great way of looking at the world completely differently solving problems that even adults don't solve because they just have seen it differently and i think that that might be you know where we draw that line from going to hey here's the right answer to hey not so concerned about that anymore i mean we've got quantum computers for crying out loud that are solving problems at Google that would have taken human beings 10,000 years to solve. I mean, we're on the cusp of something here. I'm not sure how much math the average of us needs to understand at this point. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, um, definitely a lot. I mean, talking about AI, you know, it was interesting. I was on a, I spoke at a conference in Oslo recently and Tom Anglero, who is the uh, basically director of innovation for IBM Norway talked about basically computers that can review um, basically uh, 10, 10 million pages of information in a second. Um, so you think about a physician, for example, having access through AI to every case that's ever been done um, that may uh, align with whatever symptoms you may have. So they have all that research at their fingertips and, and distilled for them in a way that can provide them guidance to really help uh, you as a patient with what you need. I mean, there's some extraordinary things. Um, you know, um, you know, coming in that regard, you know, the um, one of the podcast guests that I had uh, was Linda Darling Hammond from Stanford, probably one of the top education experts in the world. She has over 500 publications to her name. Um, the funny part was the day that I recorded the podcast for her was the same day Betsy DeVos was uh, at her confirmation hearings in the United States Senate. And I thought to myself, huh, who's talking to the person who knows more about education here? Definitely I did that day. So it was uh, interesting because Linda Darling Hammond is just prolific and, uh, and extraordinary. And um, her take on a lot of this stuff. I, and I think she's, you know, as you might imagine, also a former public school teacher in addition to being, 
you know, so that even informs today what she does, you know, in her scholarly life and what she's done, um, you know, advising presidents and and all of that uh, over the years. But um, this notion of basically we learn better when we learn together is just there's just no question about that yeah the more that we can the more that we can do that the more that also we kind of can get our head around you know you talk about um thinking out of the box kids there is no box we give them yeah. a box and we have to figure out how to teach them how to think outside of it and we're basically trying to get them back to where they started um so that's why that story rang so yeah. it hit me so hard you know he's like yeah he'll have that fearlessness beating out of him and i was like damn it why do we do that uh you know it's funny when when he he was talking to me about that um it made me think about a story when i was in elementary school and there was this conversation about um other planets and because there wasn't enough oxygen on these other planets it means life was not possible of course i raised my hand and i'm like and i, I was I, literally i was probably in single digits probably like nine or something and i said well you know couldn't there be some little kid breathing nitrogen or something somewhere right i mean right i mean why does oxygen have to be the and i was laughed at not by the other not so much by the other kids but by the teacher like that's like what an idiotic question what a what a notion and i think about that today and then now i know who the idiot was you know but the idea that you know there are all of these absolutes there are there's there's a great um uh, video by the way um uh, and um it's um dewitt jones uh dewittjones.com and if you go to the web page, it's like a two or three minute video. And he's a former nature photographer for uh, National Geographic. And I think he still speaks, um, you know, all over the world. And he talks about more than one right answer. And he basically talks about here's this photograph from this angle. Look, focusing on this one thing. There's one right answer. And then he talks about the different right answers that were achieved as he was looking at this. And I think the more that we can start looking at a lot of things, um, and not being so judgmental, but being open to the idea that maybe there's more than one right answer. Oh, my gosh, Leo, this great, great thought. As a matter of fact, so I wrote this down in my notes because I was thinking, yeah, why does there have to be one right answer? And so I wrote this down. I was like, okay, let's play with this for a minute, right? So let's say you get the uh, the question one plus one equals, right? And y- your, your choices on a multiple choice are nine, 12, uh, six, and two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what's the right answer there? Well, it's two. Um, I got it. It's, you know, from a purely calculus, you know, calculus standpoint, that that's it. Uh, one plus one equals two. If we're if we're going numerically, but then I wrote down. Well, let's think about this. If you were to ask a kid, you know, one plus one equals, and they have no math training at all, right? Um, I, I can see my daughter saying something like twins or marriage right are those wrong answers at that point right one plus one equals twins one plus one equals marriage uh one plus one equals couple uh and then the other answer is two well you can make an argument at least that those are all right to some extent right 
kind of goes against understanding in terms of uh, of how we look at those things. Like marriage well, is an interesting term, but but from a kid's standpoint, right? You, you, they could any of that could come out of their mouth, and you would be like, okay, yeah, sure, yeah. You know, and uh, how, how common is it that people talk about one plus one equals three? And we know what they're talking about, what that means. The two people on a particular task can do actually 50 percent more work than, you know, any one individual can. And so it, it all depends on how you look at it. Now, all of these things also have context, right? Yes. So we, when we ask the question, clearly when we're taking a math test, you know, it, it's That's like, exactly those, right. is that book, you ever seen that book where they have these questions and then they have like the craziest answers students gave, but they're all hilarious, but they're all really fun and right and everything. And and they're all very clever and, and cool. Yes. And speak to what you're talking about. But then again, most of the time we have context for the question <laughs> of what someone's really looking for in terms of the answer, especially when it's multiple choice. And um, now, if if uh, twins or marriage or two were part of the answers, then all of a sudden you might say all of the above. Right. That's right. Uh, and if that's not an answer and someone picks one of the other ones, do you tell them they're wrong? I think right. that's what I'm getting at. Right, Leo. Is sure. Do you tell them they're wrong at that point or do you go, ah, well, that's an interesting thought and not entirely wrong. So but you're right. Given context. But, you know kids less than us oh you're totally on i totally get where you're coming from. yeah Absolutely. and yeah. so and that I think it's not discouraging not saying you know we we just being quick to tell people they're wrong <laughs> you know i guess no. that's what i was getting at it is the magic of of what kids do and you're right i have seen those exact same things you know a list of answers kids gave where you're like Hey, that's I would give them credit for that <laughs> because it is absolutely, uh, you know, prescient. It, it wasn't what they were looking for, but it's still something that works. And I and I think that's man, that's why that that story that uh, you related in the book from that guy was, uh, you know, hit me. I was like, yeah, there's actually and I'd like to look this up, but I'll, I'll speak to it because it'll be interesting to uh, check it out. There is a. Um, an experiment that's been done for many, many years now, which I forget whether it's like popsicles, popsicle sticks or it's something, but they give little materials and they give it to a group of kids and they give it to a group of CEOs and they have them try to build something, right? And you're supposed to build the highest, you know, structure. Um, the kids win like all the time at this exercise. It is unbelievable, right? You think about it, here are these really bright people. And it isn't because the kids are smarter than the CEOs. It's the kids worked better together than the CEOs do. And it's a really fascinating thing. And that that level of collaboration and the ability for them to build on one another's thinking and ideas at that age is even far greater than those of us as adults. So it's a really cool thing. And, and I think really shows um, there was a guy, uh, Eric Wall, who does some incredible work as a speaker, but he does uh, these paintings live you know, in, in front of the audience. And he talks about a lot of this. And I remember him telling the story about, he said, he actually asked the audience, how many of you can draw? And of course, what happens in an audience of adults when you're asked if you can draw, you get a couple of people with yeah, yeah. their hand up about this high. He said, you know what happens when I ask a group of nine-year-olds how many can draw? It's like, everybody's right up there, you know, owning that and, and not feeling self-conscious about it, not looking at it relative to whether they're good, they're bad, they're just answering the question. Can you draw? You bet. 
you know and it's just great stuff and um this is obviously and i'm you know written about this before too in terms of it's why grandparents and um little kids you know really little kids especially get along so well you've got one kid who's born of innocence and the other informed by wisdom and it's this whole part in the middle that if we could not screw ourselves up you know between the ages of <laughs> probably you know 10 in 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 our 60s or whatever yeah leo a great great point you know uh I've, japan does this very well other countries as well where where the wisdom of um uh, of older folks is absolutely a built into their culture. I think we do that less because we don't value aged people, uh, because we have this really unique American way of sort of, you know, the young, the go getter, the, you know, the, the new. And, and there's a lot that gets lost when you have that. Yeah, there's some positives to it, but there's a lot that we lose in there. And oh, by the way, I understand you are a grandfather now. So congratulations. I've got uh, two grandkids. Yeah. I love it, man. Nora, who's about, um, uh, what, two years and eight months, and uh, Ben, who's about uh, seven or eight months old now. Awesome. awesome. (laughs) Good for you, man. Yeah. Yeah, uh, So, you know, when you, that is what we need to do right there. I I know I'm going to, I'm just going to stick on this for a while because I just love it so much um, because I have kids. Um, But that is what we need to do is find a way to, to get it so that we're still throwing our hands up when, when people ask if we can draw, or at least to, for a longer period of time, right? Because not only that, not only do they all put their hands up like, yeah, I can draw, they all kind of understand that they all can draw, right? They all know it. Um, and I... It, and it's that the, the the peer, like you just mentioned, they when they build a, a popsicle stick structure, they're better because they work together. As a matter of fact, you have to tell that story of your daughter Taylor uh, on Halloween when she's four years old, because this is an important important thing about how it gets back to how we trust peers now more than we do authority. Yeah, so I tell this story oftentimes just to talk about peer influence and how powerful it is and how early it starts. Um, of course, when we're born, we are social beings. We need human contact to thrive, right? I mean, there's no question about that in the same way we need food and water and all. But um, yeah, the story you're talking about was when I picked up uh, Taylor. It was on uh, Halloween night, she's four and a half years old, it's about five thirty, six o'clock. And I said, all right, is Taylor ready to go home? And the woman at the desk says, no, just a second. The director would like to have a word with you. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, because this is never good. Anyone who's ever picked up their kid, you know, at child care knows that when they want to have a word with you afterwards, yeah. something went down. That was not <laughs> so, but sure enough, um, it didn't take but a moment. And the director came out and she had a big smile on her face. And she said, I've got to tell you what happened today. So we had a party for the kids, a uh, little Halloween thing. We had everyone gathered around their little crafts and treats and music. And they thought it would be a pretty cool idea if they had um, this woman dress up as a witch and come and entertain the little ones, right? Well, sure enough, um, she walks in the door and apparently she was a little too authentic to some of the preschoolers there. So kid starts to cry a second, a third, and it was like, boom, it spreads like wildfire. Kid, the people are going crazy in there. And teachers are running around trying to calm the kids down. Taylor's watching this for about 20 or 30 seconds, finally gets up in front of the room. She makes herself real big and she says, it's okay. She's not real. There's no need to be afraid. 
and the kids are looking at Taylor. They look at one another and like, well, all right, I guess, you know, and they all <laughs> sit back down and they do the thing. They collect themselves. They go on with the party, the witch days. Everybody's good. And that's how that went. Um, you know, I remember thinking about that. Like, of course, what a time. great story, course, Leo. You must have been just so, I could just see you just so proud of that. <laughs> well, but at the time, my first thought, of course, is, wow, you know, that, that you just think that that is just born in her to, to be that person to do that, right? It's not like I ever sat her down and said, if the kids in your class ever get upset, by the way, be a leader. Step up and try to take charge and take control. Uh, clearly, that never happened, right? Um, but of course, the lens that I look at it through today, and when you think about the power of peers, is you know I'll ask groups oftentimes, "What do you think started all the commotion?" And they'll, <coughs> excuse me, and people will say fear or come up with some other thoughts around it. And but then someone you know will will say, "Hey, it was that first kid who started to cry." Sends a signal to the second kid, third kid, boom, spreads out, and that's we look to one another for those moments of whether things are safe or whether they're not or or whatever. It happens when we're kids. It happens when we're adults. Uh, the, the power appears as evident oftentimes in ways that we don't even understand. Uh, we don't even, it operates at a subconscious level. You know, I talk about the campaign that Apple ran in the early 2000s, for example, with Justin Long and John Hodgman, you know, the, I'm a, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC, right? They, they basically they get the cool kids over here and you get the kids who like eat paste, you know, over here and like they're not the cool kids at all. Which group do you want to be part of? They weren't selling features and benefits of, you know, their, their product. They were saying, what community do you want to be part of? In terms of the use of this product, who do you want to self-identify with? You know, and as you might imagine, people saw themselves like, I want to be one of the cool kids. I want to use that, you know. Um, Dude, it, it works on us. It. It, it works on us even when we're older. Every time. It works on us every time. <laughs> I mean, you look at, at companies who do a really great job at creating brand loyalty, and it's really about, um, you know, self-identifying with a product. You know, cars, I think, are a classic example, right? So I drive a BMW. I have for a number of years. I probably, as long as I can afford one, will always, always will. Um, the They do a great job of just, you know, you can't, it, it becomes an experience obviously i like the automobile i trust it i you know there's all that part of it which is really drives it but at the same time also i kind of self-identify like self-identify with that car in many respects right we can't take our houses around with us you know but we want to drive a nice car we want to drive something that we think is expression of us for some people maybe an awesome truck for someone else it's a it's a convertible for some you know whatever that is but it's very much i, I have a uh, I, I have a honda civic harley, harley drivers harley you know um <laughs> i was gonna say I, I have a honda civic i'm i'm Used. I'm, I'm not sure what that says about me. <laughs> doesn't it, and it doesn't have to be. You know, for some people, they don't even think about you know a car in that way. But they'll. But you'll look at certain products, certain people you do business with. Um, there are companies, for example, that more they think about their customers as communities, is think about them as maybe just wanting to feel a little more savvy about doing business with you versus your competitor because there's something they know. There's something that makes them feel good about 
that relationship and what that looks like so that we aren't building relationships that are strictly transactional we're trying to build relationships you know even uh, you know airlines obviously are increasingly getting better uh, at this i mean how many times other than for people who travel a lot for business or whatever but how many times is the average person getting on an airplane and yet you know, airlines like Southwest or, or many others build relationships with customers who actually use their core product, you know, very little, you know, in the scheme of things. But now they got to get credit cards, they got to, you know, there's all of these things now feed into a relationship with the company that becomes different. But it's based on this idea of being part of a community. And um, so that story that I talk about with Taylor and what this starts to look like uh, in our everyday lives as far as how we look to one another, how we depend on one another. You know, again, when we don't trust institutions, uh, you know, we look to one another for help. Employees, by the way, if you look at the latest Edelman Trust Barometer research, you know, um, employees, the, the people they trust most, basically, other than with the exception of an academic or company technical expert about what's going on at an organization, is their fellow employees. That's right. It's not the CEO. It's not the board of directors, not any of that. Um, it's where they get their information, or I should say where they find meaning from the information, right? You can know what's going on. What does it mean comes from your fellow employees, right? Um, and so I think that, um, you know, that stuff starts to become really important. So if you're a leader in a company now, I'm thinking, huh, I could just communicate down through the org organizational chain vertically, you know, through I'm going to communicate to my direct reports and then they'll communicate to theirs and runs vertically. Or I may think to myself, huh, who are the key influencers in this company that regardless of um, what their position happens to be or how big a job they have or whatever, but are people people look to and listen to? Now that becomes a different set of people. How do I get them involved early in terms of uh, what we should be doing as an organization and how we drive the successful implementation of it? When we start understanding those kinds of things, it's a game changer. Yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit more. You you uh, quoted uh, or cited the Edelman uh, study a few times in the book, and I, it really, in particular, I wrote this down. Said you highlighted some of the 2017 Edelman results in the book. Uh, there were four keys there that you had put down. One was that institutional trust decreased in all four of the main institutions that we, that they uh, study, which was government, business, media and non-governmental organizations or NGOs. Um, government and media were rated the lowest. Uh, this is 2017, so very, they, uh, very good down. Well, it, it, and, business has gone up a little bit since that time. Sure. Uh, business is more like, more on par uh, with NGOs, but as you might imagine, media and government are still Way low, low, yeah. Uh, the second one was it said 53% of the public believe the system quote unquote, the system uh, is yeah. failing them. And 32% of those were, were unsure. So it wasn't like the other 50 were pretty happy with it, right? So right. A, a fully 80-some percent of the population were saying, hey, the system, whatever that may be, um, is is not working for them. That was in, important. Uh, trust in the credibility of CEOs dropped. And you just mentioned that, right? It's more about the peers, not the CEO, your, your peers around you. And then it, it, it's the, the, the final bullet you mentioned was peers today enjoy the same level of trust as academic and technical experts. Experts. And I, th 
that one to me kind of rang because I, in many ways, think that's probably a good thing. And in many ways, it's not good. But it really depends on who the quote unquote expert is. Uh, you mentioned before we live in what I kind of think is almost a a post-truth world, but I don't mean post-truth in that there's not truth out there. I just mean that it's we're bombarded with all this information and sifting through to find the truth is very difficult. And oh, by the way, two people, and you mentioned this in your book, two people, two very smart, rational people trying to de- to decipher what is what things mean and what is real and what is the best way ahead at the end of the day on complex issues can come to different conclusions. And so what does that mean for truth, really? Um, it, it, it means that it's hard to find unequivocal truth, you know, outside of something like a mathematical equation. When we talk about epistemological, you know, st- jumping off points, you, you said it. Hey, you're not going to convince me that my position is wrong if in the end it's it's just a sensibility. Yeah, the, people use facts to obscure the truth all the time. Yeah, numbers lie and liars use numbers. I mean, when when you look at um, uh, you know political advertising or whatever, um, what they'll do is they'll you'll have a candidate say, well, somebody cast a vote against such and such um, a bill. Now, what they're not telling you, what they're telling you is factually correct. What they're trying to do is leave the impression that because they cast that vote, they must be against or for something that they clearly want to identify. Yeah, that's with. exactly right. Um, the, 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 the unpack that a little bit, however, and you find out that that vote that they cast no for, for example, included something in it that was so unbelievably objectionable that not only they, but probably most everyone else voted against it also. So, so all of a sudden. It is a fact that that person voted for that bill, but it, it, it's it obscures the truth to suggest what the what they're trying to you know. Uh, get you I guess what I'm getting at is it's it's not just so when there's a real clear divide, it's less. It, it, it's easier, I think, for thinking people to go, yeah, I got this. When the, when that divide, when that line is less objectionable or is only objectionable to 50% while the other 50 don't object, then it gets difficult. It's it Literally, if you say something like, hey, I, I'm really uh, in favor of uh, you know increasing charter schools, you can be called a racist by both sides. Yeah. I, I mean, how does that help anybody, right? Um, and so... But really, well-meaning people and thoughtful people can come to different conclusions on the benefits or negatives of charter schools, for instance. And so uh, we're not. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You you also said, though, that we don't, first of all, either have the time, the interest or the ability to dive more deeply into those things to actually find out. Um, and, and this this becomes really problematic. You know, um, it, it, it's a pet peeve of mine when I see, and of course they're really bad about it in California, but all of these ballot propositions. Um, and people say, well, we should have ballot propositions. We live in a democracy. And I'm like, we actually don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic. And there's a reason for that. Yeah, I say that all the time, <laughs> by the way. We, we live because, in a republic. Because, you know, I probably shouldn't be, you know, casting my vote on some specific you know, uh, foreign policy issue, for example, that I wouldn't have the hope to understand, you know, as well as the people we hire to do that. That's why we have representatives and why they have staff and why, you know, because 
it, there, this world and many of the issues around it are so big and so complex that we try to elect people we trust to do that work for us. It shouldn't be about, well, we don't want someone to have to cast a vote, so we're going to make a valid proposition to people. And then, by the way, as you know, these campaigns on the ballot proposition votes essentially misrepresent. You don't know if a yes means a no or a no means a yes because yeah, of the question. Yep. You know, so all that stuff. But the point being is that we don't, again, we're trying to just get through our day. We're trying to do our jobs. We try to raise our family. We try to have some recreation time. We try to spend time with family and friends and do things. It isn't about, um, you know, us trying to study up, you know, on all these issues. And unfortunately, it becomes convenient to, this is why people watch Fox News and why they watch MSNBC because they can get little trinkets of talking points that they can, you know, throw bombs into conversation. They don't really know much beyond what they just said. Yes. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what creates these, you know, fights at Thanksgiving and everything else that, you know, uh, all, all go on. And, um, you know, it's just. Um, yeah. So I, two, two points on that. So it's. For instance, the idea that there, I guess what I'm trying to get at, Leo, is in some cases, there may not be a right answer, a truth. Sure. And that, I think, is 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 key to understanding some of these complex issues, because you're right. And we've said it. We both agree. Most people aren't going to really try to unpack to steal me on the other side. Right. Um, and, and and if you if you can't, you probably don't understand as a matter of fact michael Shermer says that often i'm, I'm a big fan of michael Shermer, and I, I listen to his podcast and um uh but but he he always says uh, if you he teaches a class there uh, out in california and he, and he a freshman class and he always says hey i always ask my incoming freshmen um uh you know hey how many of you are pro-choice and how many of you are are, are pro-life you know and he goes and you know we're in california southern and these are freshmen college students he's like you know so most of the hands go up for pro-choice and then i always ask him hey how many of you think you could debate your 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 point of view with with ben shapiro and hold your own uh and he goes the hands go down a little bit because a lot of times one they don't know who he is and, and two they're kind of like yeah i don't know that i really understand enough of the issue and he and he and his point is this and i always and I, that's what i love about michael Shermer. he goes if you can't steal me on the other side um you don't understand your side and and i guess that's what i'm getting at is so it's one thing to say Hey, you know, look, I can understand why people voted for Trump. Um, it's another thing to say, in, you know, in your head, hey, those people are wrong objectively. That becomes problematic. That is where we are right now. And that's how we start going to find our, our little talking points, as you mentioned. Some of these issues really don't. And I love that you said, hey, we're in a republic. We're not in a democracy. I say that all the time. I'm like, no, actually, we're in a constitutional republic. That's a little bit different. And I, I love that you, you actually mentioned earlier, hey, let's let the states try and perform some of these experiments uh, a little bit on some of these issues so we can start to see what works better. I know there's, well, a, lot, there's a lot in that. Um, and, and, you know, when you brought up um, pro-life, pro-choice, this is a classic example of what we talked about earlier. Uh, yeah, and I don't want to get into that issue, by the way. I, I only meant it as an example of steel manning the other side, right? No, no way no, no. I'm going to get into that. I'm not suggesting it. But I, but I will say this, just from a reframing standpoint, right? So because what we talked about is the interest, the money, everything is in the fight, right? So the fight becomes Roe v. Wade. Um, which 
quite frankly, um, there's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it would be instead of each calling the other side names that misrepresent who they are and what they really care about. Imagine if both sides got together and decided, let's work together to eliminate 90% or more, whatever, whatever they could accomplish of the abortions in this country. Let's say we could agree on that. Because there's nobody who's pro-abortion, right? Um, so, so the point, the, I guess, in, in terms of, and I say this strictly from a reframing standpoint, not from a, taking a position one way or the other, but yeah. the idea would be if you actually had people working together to actually address the real issue, you could really advance some things and take that and take any other issue out there where you've got polar opposites who, I mean, um, oil companies and environmentalists, you know, have done it um, where they'll, you know, connect to a place like Davos or an Aspen Institute event or at a Milken conference or something. And all of a sudden they realize, huh, is that what you're looking for? Well, we could actually help you do that. And next thing you know, you've got people engaging in dialogue and it may be just one thing they can do together. But, you know, the person who works for the call it the oil company, the energy company, whatever, they've got kids, too. They've got, you know, we again, when you start tapping into our common humanity and what we care about and decide, hey, we can we can work on that. We may not we may disagree on 90 percent of the other stuff, but we can do that. We can do this one positive thing. Yeah. And. That happens. And Man, I, I, so I wasn't I wasn't picking on that particular issue. Either, no, yeah, it, it is an example of <laughs> that's a scary. That's always a scary issue to start talking about. Yeah, <laughs> that's the point. So I, and, and I'm always close. But you know what, Leo, I got to tell you, we, why are we scared to talk about? Yeah, we, uh, and again, it, we're not taking a position on one way or the other. It's the suggestion simply is too often when you get people t- together, there's a lot more they can agree on than you might imagine. Yeah. And why don't we start there? Yeah. There, uh, there are some subjects that, that, that elicit more emotion than others. That one sure. probably is the biggest, or at least in my experience. So I, I only mentioned as a steel man, but then as you went on, I, I, and I know I was kind of starting to interrupt, I apologize. What I was doing is I was <laughs> nodding my head because I'm like, wow, that is exactly where I come from on that issue, which is what you said. Hey, no one wants this to happen. How do we prevent the, that from even becoming a thing? I have often said, I was like, I think maybe in the future with technology and, and the right way forward, we can probably, there, there will probably be later generations going, wow, you could have an unwanted pregnancy. How did that happen? Right. And then that's probably better for everybody. Uh, But it becomes about right now or even worse, it becomes about our our understanding from the past and in those issues right instead of hey what what is it going to look like in the future so we get locked into right locked into how things are framed versus trying to yeah frame it i mean obviously um you know um you know guns is another huge one yeah that's Um, another one that elicits all so many different things you know out there but you know if you um there's a great ted talk by it's it's been around for a while but william yuri's uh the walk from no to yes uh is a magnificent um ted talk about um you know just people work together he actually tells a story that if 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 you don't even want to listen to it for the whole 18 minutes or how typically these go he tells a story in the opening two minutes about um three sons who are trying to, um, you know, they were left 18 camels and they've got to figure out 
you know, which, how many camels each gets. And there was a big thing about it. And I don't want to retell the story. It's a very cool story. He tells it so beautifully. Um, What's his name again? Nor- Norris? William. And it's Yuri. Yuri. U-R-Y. Got it. I'm, I'm writing it down. That's why, because I want to... I wanna... Wait, wait till, you, wait till you hear that story. It's magnificent. Um, but, but he goes on, and I, and I would suggest really listening to the entire piece, because he talks about this idea of people coming together, and he speaks to what he refers to as the third side. And the third side becomes, you know, like we wanted to, we, we're deeply divisive on this, but to benefit our kids, to benefit the next generation, to do something, that third side, that, that, that um, component that should drive our ability to collaborate and work together toward positive solutions uh, can become very powerful when we all start focusing on what's at stake here. You know, what's really at stake here? What's at stake isn't the fight. What's at stake isn't any of the stuff that we try to pick at and talk about. It's how, how do we address this issue in a way that can matter because there's something at stake here. Um, and whatever we identify that to be, that becomes that third side that we should all um, probably think more about, you know, as we're engaged in these pitched battles. Yeah. You know, over things that, well i have a, a a way of thinking about that that um that it, it probably doesn't it, it probably doesn't mirror exactly what's going on but i always kind of say if there's someone out there who uh the you know the right and the left are pointing their fingers out equally with uh with anger i'm usually apt to look at that person and be like "Ooh, who's this they might be onto something <laughs> and i feel like i've always been that guy that that so i i'm you know again uh, i've had friends on both sides go hey bart you know if you're not with us you're against us <laughs> well no that's well, not absolutely true at all <laughs> that, that is precisely right you know um one of the things though i, I want to mention this briefly because yeah. what, what has changed a little bit when you talked about 2017 to 2019 in the um um Edelman Trust Barometer is while people continue to trust their fellow employees at a very high level, uh, they are also, because of their lack of trust in government and the media, are looking to their companies and their CEOs to be leaders on social issues, which is really interesting. And it very much aligns with um, a millennial workforce that wants to be much more purposeful about what they do and how they do it. And so I, I wanted to bring that up because I think that there are there's a lot of good things happening out there. Um with um, private yeah. companies, and I think it's also helping them uh, in terms of building trust, you know, among all of their constituents. Whether this is why I'm glad that my wife is in your class studying, <laughs> because uh, corporate social responsibility is not something I had never even heard of mm-hmm. uh, until this year. And as a matter of fact, I think that Rutgers absolutely just absolutely. I think that just this semester they are started to offer CSR as a specialization, and that's what yes. uh, my right. wife is now studying as part of yep. your uh, as part of your class, uh, and it just fits her so well. This this is great. By the way, since you mentioned it, and I'll, I'm going to let you unpack all of this. You had a, a quote in in the book that I just love, um, and and rather than scroll through my notes, I'm going to try and paraphrase it. It was, "Hey, generations aren't about values; generations are about." 
context and you were sp- speaking about millennials, but it's true of any generation. It's not values that, that generations are holding. It's context for their own human existence. And I just thought, man, that is brilliant. And I'm going to steal it and use it. Well, it's the context that shapes the values, right? So when you consider the world, you know, I grew up in, right? And the world that my daughters grew up in, they're both about 30, let's call it, right? Um, I mean, they grew up with 9-11. They grew up with, I mean, a whole, with technology and a whole, there's so many things that are part of what shaped everything about they or their formative experiences, if you will, that were so different from mine, that it's it's not about trying to judge what they did or compare it in any way. It's about seeing that for what it is, understanding it, and, and knowing that they see the world differently because it's been shaped by completely different events and experiences in their lives and what they know um, than for for all of us and and i think this is where when we talk about this circle of people we have around us this is why we should really be thinking about we can absolutely learn as much from our kids as we can from our grandparents um we should be thinking and one of my favorite things about uh, teaching at rutgers is most of the students that i have are younger than i am some significantly younger than i am and it just keeps me connected to a contemporary view of the world in terms of this generation and what they grew up with and what to be thinking about and how they look at all these things. And, you know, I'd like to think it keeps me young too. So we'll, we'll you know, maybe there's uh, some, some benefit there, but I think it definitely uh, does by the way. Sure. So, yeah. So when you, when I read that, I just thought this is really an incredible insight um, because you're right. I don't think I'm as guilty of this as some, but yes, there are people out there just like, ah, the millennials, they're lazy, they're self blah, 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 blah. Or, but, but you know what? Really? Every generation has said that about the next generation for as oh, yeah. long as you can remember. I mean, it, it Plato said that. Yeah, that's about right. Plato and so said, it's never, you know, oh, that next generation, oh, we're screwed now. That's you right. Know? So when you hear that again and again and again, do you have to, if you're a rational person, I think say, well, it's never been true. It's never been true. The next generation is not whatever someone says they are. They are about context. They are just human beings with a different context. And it just so happens that right now, right, um, the context is huge because if you're, you know, if you've read the Byron Reese book, uh, you know, The Fourth Age, then we're probably at a human turning point that we haven't seen since the Industrial Revolution uh, and on par with uh, with that in terms of our human experience, how we deal with the world and with each other. So and they're having to navigate that. Gen Z is, I mean, uh, they they will never have not had that right. So amazing, amazing stuff and a really great insight, Leo. I uh, I commend you, and I I think you probably ought to put a put a circle C around that at some point so that you get. <laughs> so that you get to- Everyone loves to take their kind of cheap shots at millennials, and I think that um, I think the world's in pretty good hands. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, it's really- a, there's great human beings that rise to the occasion. Uh, again and again and again they will until we are no longer around so uh, i just thought that was great let let's uh, i, I want to let's start to kind of wrap up what i really want to talk uh, talk about before we go though is um communication and you talk about this a lot in the book you know in terms of um in, in how we talk to each other i have a 
term that I that I coined a while back called conversational narcissist. And I, I came up with this when I was in the Marine Corps uh, in dealing with someone in very, very particular that I just it was amazing to me. Every time we talked, it was it was this person talking at me, waiting for the next opportunity where he could say, here's what I think. Here's what I've done. Here's what's right. And I know it. And never, ever did this person ever ask a question ever like, hey, what do you think about this? But uh, it, it it's true. Many people are listening only for their the, for the pause where they can start to tell you what it is that's true or what they know or what their experience is. And that is problematic. And I, I actually think that in the military, not only is that um, a little more prevalent, it, it's actually almost looked upon as like leaderly, you know, the guy that can talk at you and tell you these truths. And, and often they talk in platitudes. They love to throw a platitude out there as if it's a truth. And, and that, that comes across as, oh, yeah, that guy's real. Uh, yeah, he, he's a leader. And instead of the guy who's asking questions and is curious, and that is me, like I have always just been super curious. You mentioned it in the book, Leo. If, if someone tells me that they're a, a cricket farmer and I'm on the plane with them, then you can bet for the rest of that flight, I'm going to find out everything I can about cricket farming. And I'm going to keep asking them about that. And that, the, you know, asking people questions, asking for their experience, asking for, you know, what they think about this, how they see the world is how we get better. And it's how, and again, you mentioned a study in the book that, that talked about people who, uh, you know, when they feel connected with people, it's usually when they're being asked questions, when someone's listening to what they have to say. So introverts often will be in a conversation with an extrovert and the extrovert will walk out thinking, hey, we just made a great connection. While the introvert walks away going, geez, I never got to say a thing and I didn't feel like I made a connection at all. Communication is is a continuous loop. Uh, in which the in which two people have a back and forth about how they think if it's one person talking at somebody then it's not really communication and i i love that you touched on that and you applied it to how your podcast is i, I you know what i'm sorry i just went on a tangent i would love to get your no, thoughts not on at all i think you know it's it's talk about human nature i mean um no matter what kind of conversation it is, could be a job interview could be anything whoever talks the most thinks the conversation went the best so this is why in a job interview it can be so critical. And also, by the way, in a job interview, and I've asked this of students at Rutgers, I said, if if you left a job interview and someone asked that person about you, would you rather be known as the person who gave great answers or the person who asked great questions? And by far, you want to be the person who asked the great questions. First of all, the fact that if you're asking great questions and those questions clearly are informed, Right. So someone knows that you don't have to say, I've done my homework about your company because I know this, this, this and the other. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask a question that clearly shows that I've got that depth of knowledge. But now I'm going to get you to talk about it. Um, and A, you're going to learn something. And B, um, you're going to create that dynamic where you get those people talking and interested. Uh, I mentioned to them whether it's um, on social media or when you're meeting someone at a networking event. If you try to be interested before trying to be interesting, you will be <laughs> you will be far more successful in in these conversations. And to your point exactly about to be interested means that I'm going to ask questions and um, 
And when I start asking good questions and people get to talk about themselves, but in response to things that I've asked them about so they know that there's relevance to it, it, it makes for a nice dialogue. And so, or at least the start of one. Yeah, and it also makes for a good podcaster. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I've listened to your podcast a few times, and it's the same. I think that um, what makes a great podcaster is what you just talked about, which is a curiosity and a desire to learn more from the person and allow them to, to to express themselves, to get those gems out of them that, that, that they might have in there, but especially in, in, in people that don't like to talk much, you have to pull it out of them and, and get it out of them. But but once once you do, once they're comfortable and you can get them to open up, then they're, they're willing to talk. Even even the shyest people will start to really talk and and, oh, yeah. and they're going to walk away from you feeling like, hey, that that guy or that gal really cares about what I think. I I felt good around them. Um, and so I, I, I thought that that whole section of, of the book when you talked about communication um, was just absolutely great. It, it rang so true. It's why I do the podcast uh, because I'm just that curious guy. Um, and I spent all these years in, in an organization that is great I, and it was a great challenge and I loved it and I did some really cool things. Um, happy to have done it. But at the same time, it was always sort of the people that, that talk at you tend to be almost more valued in, in that context than the, than the people who have, a, you know, an intellectual curiosity. So, well, listen, I'm, we're, so we're coming up on, on time. I, I want to be mindful. Uh, I know you've got things to do today out, out there, but uh, I thought I'd just give you a couple moments to, uh, to, you know, leave us with some parting thoughts, Leo, uh, some wisdom that we can uh, get from you and, uh, and what's on your mind. So I'll leave you with a parting thought. The wisdom is not from me. It's actually is what you may remember as the opening quote from the book from Seiko Andrews. Seiko Andrews actually um, is a poetic voice. And his story, which we talk about in the book, is really rather remarkable in terms of, um, you know, what he's doing today and and what that journey looked like for him. And I'll I'll let uh, readers um, get that. But His quote is simply this. He said, there is an incredible power that comes from surrounding yourself with communities in which you feel small among them and they look at you like a giant. So, uh, you know, I think that um, Seku's words there say it all in terms of the value and importance of what it can mean for us uh, to surround ourselves with some really good people, to get in touch with who we are, uh, what we want, um, surround ourselves with people who can help us make that possible, and for us to return the favor whenever we possibly can. So anyway, loved being on your show today. Thank you so much. It was uh, just... um, you know, really terrific. It was nice to take a deep dive into this, which is, you know, what uh, the time has afforded us. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Leo. Uh, I'm, I loved having you. And what a great conversation uh, and just so much uh, valuable insight in this book and from you and and in your experiences that I've, I've gotten and that I'm going to take away from this. So uh, real, real pleasure. Uh, maybe we can do it again in the future. I had a whole bunch of notes that we never even got to. So uh, if you're if you're amenable to that, maybe we can do that again sometime in the future. Anytime. Okay. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, Leo. Appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here today again in the Ready Room. Uh, got so much out of today's conversation. Now, if you did enjoy our conversation today, then please hit like. And while you're at it, uh, subscribe to the Ready Room, uh, wherever it is you're getting your podcast today. 
You can find out more about us online at readyroombrief.com. Uh, you can follow us on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram at The Ready Room. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Ready Room Brief One. I've been your host, Richard Frederick, and on behalf of Chunks and myself, we thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you next time in The Ready Room. <laughs>